When it comes to damaging your relationships, there's not much worse you can do than pointing the finger. Blaming others for our problems slams the door shut on any future progress you might have made together. But what if we could retrain blame so when we instinctively look for problems, instead we accept our situation, take responsibility, and open the door to new solutions? There's more than one side to this though. As we'll learn, solutions don't always equal success, but they might help you make that critical call when it matters most. And the right decision at the right time might just create your next big breakthrough. Welcome to season two of Subject Matter. Hello and welcome to another season of Subject Matter. This is episode one and I'm your host, Ben Bradbury. We are going to be tackling decision-making this season. That is the big theme. And I'm very excited to bring this to you guys, not just because we have some great ideas and stories to tell, but this season we're going to be interviewing other subject matter experts and learning about the decisions that shape their journey. We've already got some great guests lined up. I'm very excited to bring them to you in just a couple of weeks. But let's get started with the season. So the big idea behind this is decision-making. And specifically, the idea that making decisions in the moment can be improved by analyzing how we actually make them. So behind every action that you make, whether it's a good action, a bad action, or an ugly action, is a decision. And this year, you're certainly going to have some big decisions to make. I know that almost everyone listening is going to as well. And this season's focus is going to be giving you new mental models that will help you understand both yourself and the world around you so you can make better decisions as a result across your work, your relationships, and your home life. But let's take a step back first. We need to actually define what a mental model is, so we're all on the same page. So a mental model as a very simple definition is simply understanding how the world works. So let's have a practical example. So let's say you want to understand how the economy works, why certain things are priced at a certain price when you go into a shop to buy them. And we can use the mental model of supply and demand to understand it. Supply and demand is where the price of something is influenced by its availability and how many people want to actually buy it. You've got the supply on one side of the scales and then the demand that balances it out. And this simple principle helps us understand how the wheels of the economy turns. And likewise, understanding simple principles behind how our brains work, psychology, the biases that we're prone to, and also the strengths that we have will help us understand how we work and how we make decisions. The father of mental models is a man called Charlie Munger, and we mentioned him back in season one. He is Warren Buffett's right-hand man. And Charlie Munger said that you've got to come up with a latticework of models to run your experiences through. Munger believed it wasn't good enough to just have the experiences and try to understand them. We had to have this kind of secondary filter to pass everything through, these reference points or concepts or frameworks that we use to understand the world around us and help us critically make better decisions in the future. So to make this concrete, I want you to think of yourself like a builder. And you're a builder that's got different tools in your toolbox. And life is going to throw you a bunch of different tasks. You have to build this, fix this, move into this. And each of those tasks will have an appropriate tool that helps you get to your desired result. So you can think of the saw, the hammer, the spanner, all the tools in your toolbox as mental models. Each of those mental models is going to have a right fit for the specific job you have. And the sharper your tools, the better your choices will be. 
So with that out of the way, let's jump into today's topic and the mental model that we want to try and build. And that is around blame and pointing the finger. So let's get something out of the way. We all know, everyone listening, that blame is bad. Pointing the finger at someone and saying, you're the reason this happened in whatever capacity is generally not a good idea. And we're taught from a very young age that blaming people, however that looks, is frowned upon, and rightly so. But why is that exactly? Well, let's dig dig into the definition of blame itself. So blame's definition is to feel or declare that someone or something is responsible, important word, remember that, responsible for a fault or wrong. Now, these negative connotations we can understand if we take another step back into a word that blame is related to, which is blaspheme. Blaspheme is speaking untowardly about religious matters. So this is offending people that has gone back centuries or potentially even millennia. I'm not sure exactly when the word came around, but it's certainly an ancient word. And so this idea of blame has been going around for a while. It seems pretty universally bad across the books. And so why is that exactly? Well, when we engage in blame, we are seeking easy answers to life's difficult problems by pinning what really matters and who made the critical decision on anyone but ourselves. And unfortunately, that is not how life works. Life and success is all about taking responsibility for our positions and making the best of what we have. What Theodore Roosevelt would come on to famously call the man in the arena. And I highly recommend you going and reading that quote if you haven't already. But this idea of blame is taking that responsibility and moving it on to somebody else. We're not taking responsibility for our outcomes. And instead, we put that accountability on someone else's head. We put someone else's neck on the line while we swing the guillotine. And that is just not how the world works. And so to understand why blame is such a venomous force, we need to dig into the science behind how we think. And this is a theme we're going to come back to a lot this season is understanding the psychology and biases at play in our brains. So your brain is filled with neural pathways, and you can think of these pathways like the muscles you have in your body. The more that you work certain muscles or certain pathways by thinking or using certain mental models, the stronger that they are going to grow. And conversely, the less that you use them, just like a muscle, the more they will atrophy, they'll become weaker and harder to use. Now, in most cases, our muscles are usually a good thing. They fuel our body, they stretch our physical ability, and they prop up our ability to move from A to B, to lift the pencil that we write with and write type at the laptop like I'm doing earlier today. They do everything for us in the most broad sense of the word. But when it comes to our brain's muscles, not every neural pathway are necessarily good to work out. And that's because if we lift the wrong neural pathway, the wrong muscle, those toxic forces get a greater grasp on how we operate. And so the more that we blame others, the stronger blame's neural pathway becomes. And that means the easier it is to blame next time. Every time you blame someone, you're flexing your brain to seek problems. And while that might satisfy you in the short term, and honestly, if we're being brutally honest, satisfy your ego, blaming never leads anywhere productive. I challenge you to think of when you actually blame someone for something and it led to any way virtuous. I would love to hear from you, actually, if you think that there is a situation where that applies. But the truth is, as far as I can see it today, Blame closes the door on any opportunity that you might have had with someone. But there's another side to this. 
we can retrain blame. And this episode, I'll be giving you a new mental model that you can use when you find yourself wanting to blame. And the metaphor that we'll come back to and that I want you to visualize right now is the difference between an open door and a closed door. It's the difference between closing doors with blame, the doors of opportunity, and instead opening other doors of opportunity by not focusing on problems, but focusing on solutions instead. Rather than point the finger at what went wrong and find someone to blame, we can instead seek solutions that would open new doors of opportunity and they may lead to our next big step forward. So let's get into it. For our first story for season two, we're going to break down one of the greatest defeats ever inflicted on the most powerful ancient civilization arguably ever to grace the earth. It's the year 216 BC in the southeast of Italy. And there are two rival powers that are vying for ancient global supremacy. They are in the blue corner, the Roman Empire, and in the red corner, Carthage. And the red corner has migrated all the way from their base in modern day Spain to the southeast of Italy to knock on the door of Rome's heartland. And the Carthaginian commander Hannibal was up against one of the largest armies that Rome has ever rallied in response to a threat, an army of 80,000 men. Now, if that doesn't sound like much in today's terms, you've got to realize that this is over 2,000 years ago when the world population is just a fraction of what it is today. 80,000 men as an army from one of the most powerful civilizations ever is about as big as it gets. And on paper, there's no question who should have won. The Romans need no introduction to this story. Their superior weapons, tactics, armor, and technology led to a civilization that wouldn't fully close its eyes for good until the fall of Constantinople 1,600 years later. So this is a formidable threat. And I want you to, for a second, to imagine that you're Hannibal in this position. You're faced with pretty steep odds for succeeding. But you've come this far. Your troops have traveled thousands of miles. What can you do? And I'm sure you've been in a similar spot in your own life where you've made lots of progress, but you just can't seem to move any further around this insurmountable obstacle. Now, this is where Hannibal is faced with a choice. He could easily blame. And I know that if I was in his situation, I might easily blame as well, to be honest. I could have blamed the gods. I could have blamed my troops for not being fast and getting there slowly. I could have blamed any one of dozens of factors for why I am up against this almighty obstacle. But Hannibal acted differently. Where others saw adversity, Hannibal retrained his blame. He looked deeper past the problems in front of him to open the door to a potential solution. Now, before we go any further, I want you to realize that if you're in a similar situation, you can ask yourself, where can I turn my problem into a solution? Seemingly, the obstacle that is in front of us might just be the thing that gets us to where we need to go. And that is what Hannibal would find out at the Battle of Cannae. So Cannae itself was a giant open plain. And this is where Hannibal found his advantage in the environment in front of him. He deployed his troops very carefully. The Romans had deployed their troops in three ranks, one, two, three, of a seemingly unbreakable line. I want you to imagine a rigid, reinforced ruler that stretches for hundreds and hundreds of meters. That's what the Romans looked like, three ginormous rulers. And Hannibal 
started out by matching their deployment the exact same way in a big long line. But then slowly but surely, he starts creeping the center of his troops forward until his line stretches out to resemble a V, with the tip of the V pointing right at the Roman center. And so the battle begins, and right as the emboldened Romans advance, Hannibal slowly but surely pulls his center back. And he's taking sustained losses here, but not losses that are anything serious. This is all very premeditated. And the Romans start getting confident. They start moving further, forward, faster, until the flanks of Hannibal's lines are pushed right up against the Romans, but his center is drawn all the way back. And so this V has inverted into a giant U, a giant bowl that the Romans have walked into. Hannibal had chosen his position wisely. He had chosen it based on a door to opportunity. Now, I want you to imagine that you've got a hundred friends and you're in a windy, dusty climate and you're trying to coordinate with each other to make sure you're all moving in the same direction. You're about five meters apart from each other. There's a hundred of you. You've got no phones, no radio. You've just got to make sure with low visibility and low sound, you're all moving in the same direction across this vast open plain. It's probably going to be pretty tricky. You can probably hear about 10 people in front of you. You certainly can't hear any more than 20. So you're going to have to trust on the men and women that are next to you to make sure that you are actually moving in the same direction. So it's a tricky task. Now, I want you to imagine 80,000 people trying to do this with heavy metal armor on, wind and dust blowing into their helmets, obscuring their vision, sand itching, getting everywhere, and a bloodthirsty army in front of you. That is exactly the situation that the Roman army found themselves in. And it was in the middle of all this chaos on the army's flanks that Hannibal's plan threw off its mask and revealed itself. His superior cavalry defeated the Romans at the edge of their ruler, allowing him to swing in from behind, closing the gaping bowl that his army was arranged into, into a complete impenetrable circle with no way out, surrounding the Romans in the what would become the world's first recorded pincer movement. The trap door slammed shut on 80,000 terrified Roman soldiers as the Carthaginian men systematically picked off the Romans one by one. Hannibal's victory at Cannae didn't come from superior numbers. It didn't come from better fighters or better technology. It came from the mental model he used. It came from retraining his blame, those neural pathways in his brain that would default otherwise to blaming other people for our problems. And instead, he took responsibility for his situation, accepted the problem lay with him, and dug into the problem as deep as he could, looking for solutions until he unearthed an open door of opportunity, which once he found, he stepped through ruthlessly. So how can we take the lessons from Hannibal and apply them into our own lives? This is going to be a big theme of season two, taking the stories and then reflecting on them afterwards to actually understand how we can apply them. So first of all, Hannibal had committed to a goal. His goal was lofty. It was defeating the Roman Empire. And in similar fashion, you need to know exactly what it is you want. That is always the first step to progress. Now, your goal doesn't have to be as audacious as defeating an entire civilization, although it could be. And if it is, please do write to me because I'm very interested to meet the people that are brave and brackets crazy enough to try and take on something like that today. But you do need that goal. Now, when you're moving forward to the goal, you're going to encounter point number two, which is adversity or the obstacle. 
And obstacles are always going to come up, but it is how we respond to them that matters, as Epictetus said. And in this case, the 80,000 Romans in front of Hannibal, that rigid ruler of formation in front of him, they represent the obstacle that you are facing. And so just like Hannibal, this is where you get to make your decision. You have your goal, you have your problem. This is where there's a fork in the road. Will you choose to blame someone or something for why you can't reach your goal, effectively closing the door to any further progress? Or will you decide to retrain that blame, retrain the neural pathway to focus on potential solutions, allowing yourself to open the door to future opportunities? Now, you have the mental model right in front of you, but subject matter is never complete without looking at the other side of the table. And that's what we're going to do now by zeroing in on what happens if we don't retrain blame and if we don't allow that neural pathway to be boxed away and replace it with looking for solutions. And instead, it dominates our personality. Listeners, it's time for a cautionary tale. Now, few people are born into more responsibility than the man by the name of Kaiser Wilhelm II. And at 12 years old, Wilhelm became second in line to become almighty Kaiser, or king in English, of the German Empire. There aren't many people on the brink of their teenage years that have more responsibility. But unfortunately, this little boy who had become the man had much to gain and everything to lose. You see, Wilhelm's story would become a cautionary tale of what happens when blame becomes your coping mechanism for life's difficulties, where you don't accept responsibility for your problems and instead they're manifested on others. Now, let's get the one thing straight. Wilhelm did not have an easy life. He was faced with two big challenges early on. He had a traumatic birth, which meant that his permanently damaged left arm couldn't be used for normal tasks like cutting food. And even perhaps more heartbreakingly than that, he was denied the thing that he wanted most, which was acceptance from his grandmother, Queen Victoria. Wilhelm was related to the British royals. And even though Victoria liked Wilhelm and treated him well, her other British relatives disliked him, and they turned their noses up and never accepted him into the fold. So you can imagine you've got a man who can't live up to the image of king that he's inherited and he so dearly wants to on two levels. He can't live up to the image not only physically with his deformity, but relationally as well with his British family spurning him. And what was his reaction when faced with this adversity? It was to blame. Now, one more time, just to really get the point across, I empathize with Wilhelm. He was faced with tremendous adversity. And this is really not easy to deal with, I can imagine. And, and it's easy for me to share this in 2020, nearly a hundred years later, looking back through the annals of history. But I do want to try and point out the principles that we can apply here today, because this is a man who was born into responsibility and failed to accept responsibility for the problems that he faced. And this is something that we can all relate to. I'm a big believer in the fact that we are only as strong as the people we surround ourselves with. We should very much try and lean off others, learn from their strengths, and have them complement our strengths and our weaknesses too. But unfortunately, Wilhelm is a cautionary tale of what happens when that principle inverts the other way quite violently. You see, his career is littered with dysfunctional decisions. 
He meddled in German foreign policy based on the whims of his emotions, making very alarming public statements without consulting his team, without leaning on the people around him. And he did the exact same thing with the British royal family, who he had a tense relationship with. Bearing in mind this is just before the First World War, he attacks the British royals in an interview with the London-based Daily Telegraph, saying, you English are mad, mad, mad as March hares. Are these really the people that you want to be offending? This is your team. And this is a guy who is just severing all ties by blaming people relentlessly. And likewise, Wilhelm couldn't handle the blame of defeat being put into his hands in the First World War. And that's because when his country went to war against the UK, his blood relatives, when Germany would carry out military maneuvers, only the Kaiser's side was allowed to win the maneuver. Now, you've got to understand that's a little bit weird. Having just one guy being able to win the maneuver, that's a serious tactical deficiency. But nonetheless, Wilhelm went ahead. Now, his blame doesn't stop there. He blamed his own leadership for his adversity as well. He broke ties with the Iron Chancellor, Otto von Bismarck, who had created the German Empire 20 years earlier from the Kingdom of Prussia, and he dominated German politics ever since. Bismarckian diplomacy is still studied today. This guy was such a genius in strengthening political ties and bringing people together, and Wilhelm severs the tie completely, brutally with him, and Bismarck, in response, would bitterly predict that Wilhelm leads Germany to ruin. Wilhelm only saw the world in terms of vicious problems and not opportunities. He was quick to turn on his fellows, breaking with Bismarck, severing ties with the royal family. And the sad truth is, he never was able to retrain his blame. He couldn't look past the problems in front of him and actually turn them into opportunities. So I suppose that that's that then. Blaming is bad and we can retrain our blame to stop closing doors and instead open doors to new opportunities, right? Episode finished. Not quite. You see, there's another side to this argument. Solutions alone do not equal success. It's never enough to just find a solution. And the inconvenient truth is, I'm afraid, that if solutions are misapplied through a bad decision, they can leave you in an even worse place than once you started. Now, you've just heard one perspective from the First World War where Kaiser Wilhelm and the central powers behind him were the losers in the end. But let's turn the tables because they certainly weren't the only ones to make mistakes. And let's look at the Allies and their campaign to Gallipoli. Now, the Allies had a pretty simple aim with Gallipoli. They would push through the narrow stretch of water called the Dardanelles Strait, capture the Turkish capital, Istanbul, and in so doing, set up a key naval trade route with Russia. So the UK and Russia could link and thus close the door on Germany, Turkey, and their allies. Now, this was a great plan. The allies had identified a solution. Opportunity's door was wide open. If they could break through, they would have a distinct naval advantage in the war. Now, they attempted to take the strait by naval power. And that attempt failed. They were repelled by Turks who fiercely defended their homeland and their religion and were just frankly much better prepared than they were expecting. And so the Allies went home with their tails between their legs and regrouped. Now, this is where our story changes because part of blame is accepting the situation that you are in and knowing when, frankly, some things aren't yours to change. And that might mean closing the door 
on a solution that no longer works. And it was at this critical juncture where the Allies failed. They failed to accept the situation they were in and know when things were not theirs to change. Rather than question what actually went wrong at Gallipoli and question whether to change their course, politicians arguing thousands of miles away in London overlooked the need to change their decision and decided that logically the thing to follow a naval attack was to land troops. And so even though the naval attack was botched, they sanctioned Allied troops to land on the shores of Gallipoli. Now, this is a theme we're going to come back to in season two, which is when it comes to making the right decision, timing is crucial. The Gallipoli initiative relied on speed. As soon as the Allies pressed go on the plan, they had to catch the Turks by surprise and quickly take the Dardanelles straight and be able to reinforce that link with Russia. But unfortunately, that is not what happened because as politicians squabbled, the Turks built their defenses. Initially, the Allies planned to surprise them within a week. But by the time the offense actually started, the Turks had had over a month to build up defenses. Once naked beaches were now covered in armored forts, barbed wire, and all banners of hellish defenses designed to make the invaders' lives a misery. And you can probably see where this is going. Gallipoli was a disaster. The Allies retreated, nothing was gained, and most importantly, thousands of lives were lost. And it was General Sir Ian Hamilton, who was one of the brains behind the operation, who said the following, at whose door will history leave the blame for the helpless, hopeless fix we are left in? Unfortunately for Sir Ian Hamilton, the Allied commanders can only blame themselves. They had a solution, but they never stopped to question whether it was the best possible option. And in the end, by failing to match their expectations with reality and missing their timing window altogether, their decisions would spell disaster. So let's try and understand why the Allies made such a critically bad decision, why it was so hard for them to accept their situation and actually see things for how they were. Well, one explanation lies with a very critical bias that we are prone to, and that is called the sunk cost fallacy. The sunk cost fallacy is very simply, if we have invested time, money, or energy into something, we are more likely to continue investing in it. So as an example, I want you to imagine that you've invested millions into a new housing development. And after a few months, it becomes clear that the property market might be entering a downturn. Now, is it easier for you to pull out of that investment? Or is it easier for me to pull out of the property market who hasn't invested anything yet? The answer is obvious, right? It's you. It's harder for you because you've sunk cost into the property. And this goes far beyond money. The principle and the bottom line is that the more we invest into something, the easier it becomes to keep investing, to keep fulfilling that decision we have already made, and the harder it is to pull away. Note the link here between sunk cost fallacy and the neural pathways in our brains as muscles. The more we use the muscle, the more we commit to a decision, the harder it becomes to deviate away from it. And in that sense, the glue gets stickier. We are trodden down to the decisions that we have already made. And this is exactly what happened to the Allied command. They had sunk so many resources into the Gallipoli campaign that to abort might be seen as wasteful. And there are some records that go on to show that the British generals were loath to have their old ships sunk. 
in the straits. These were these old school ships that were being replaced. Their wooden hulls were being replaced with metal juggernauts that would just dominate them in a one-to-one war. And so the British commanders saw them as disposable, but unfortunately, the British Navy generals had sunk so much time and love into these ships that they couldn't just commit to destroying their darlings in a suicide attack. So the plan and their timing window was missed. So we can avoid making this mistake when evaluating a decision by asking ourselves a simple question. Am I being pulled into keeping investing in this decision because of prior commitments? Is something that I've already done pulling me to keep making that same decision? Unfortunately, the expectations that we subconsciously have in our brain might not match up to the reality of the situation. So be aware of where your biases stand. For our final story today, we're going to look at one of the most innovative ways to open a door to progress, and that is simply by inventing a brand new way of reaching it. And at the time that this story was told, people could reach it by ground, they could reach it by horse and carriage, and they could even reach it by car if they needed, but they couldn't reach it by the skies. So who were the first people to successfully fly an aeroplane? You may well know the answer. And those are the Wright brothers. The Wright brothers would go on to beat better equipped adversaries, people like Glenn Curtis, who had time, capital, resources at his disposal to flight. These plucky underdogs weren't afraid to fail. They took responsibility for their actions, and they relentlessly solved problems in their path to progress. And it was their 12 seconds of controlled flight that opened the doors of opportunity to a brand new aviation industry. The Wright Brothers story is a true tale of innovation, dedication, and willpower. That's how most of us remember the Wright Brothers. And I wish I could end their story there. But no subject matter episode is complete without giving you the full perspective. There's a darker side to this success story. The Wright brothers had discovered the vital importance of lateral stability in flying, making sure your wings are completely stable across. Their great innovation was something they called wing warping, using a series of pulleys that caused the wingtips on one side of the airplane to go up, while the wingtips on the other side were pulled down. And that meant the Wright's plane could make banked turns and to correct itself when it flew into a gust of wind. Very clever, right? But the Wright brothers had an important decision to make. By making wing warping available to other aeroplane pioneers, they could massively accelerate aviation innovation. The entire industry, and not just to mention eventually consumers like you and I, could one day benefit. But they didn't. And instead, Wilbur Wright wrote in a letter, It is our view that morally the world owes its almost universal system of lateral control entirely to us. It is also our opinion that legally it owes it to us. This is today's final lesson. If opportunity's door has been opened for you, even if it's from your own efforts, the least you can do is hold it open for the person who's following just behind. But unfortunately, the Wright brothers didn't do that. Their sense of responsibility turned into a sense of toxic entitlement because they knew what they'd created wing warping was inherently valuable. They weren't stupid. But in the end, they ended up wanting compensation, not just for wing warping, but for any means of achieving lateral stability. In other words, to translate that for you, they wanted a monopoly on flight itself. And it was this selfish focus that slowed down progress in the aviation industry right as it was beginning to bloom. 
Now, this is very easy for me to say. I didn't live the rights' lives. I certainly didn't make their achievements. And there is an argument to say that they are entitled to every piece of monopoly that they want to create. But when we zoom out across history and we look at progress with a capital P, it is very rarely aided by people who try and put their own interests at the expense of others. Of course, put yourself first. That's how every great thing is done, by following your dreams. But don't try and bring other people down in the process, because that's what the Wright brothers did. They developed this twisted sense of responsibility where, because of their solution, the door they opened, they felt that the entire aeroplane business and every aeroplane manufactured thereafter owed them something. All because they felt they had to take responsibility, not just for their open door, but every door everyone else would open in the future too. In fact, you could even say it sounds like they subconsciously blamed everyone else for not getting there first. Just because you found the solution shouldn't stop others improving on it later. We are all standing on the shoulders of giants. So be careful, because pride comes right before the fall. So let's review what we've learned today. Your first takeaway is that the neural pathways in your brain act like muscles. The more you work them, the stronger they grow. But not all pathways are good. The more we blame, the easier it is to do, and the more it becomes our default state. We need to remember to disengage from this vicious cycle. So how do we make that switch? Your second takeaway is to try and retrain your blame. So you, rather than seeking problems in others, search for solutions instead. And the mental model we can use to do this is a door. It's the difference between a closing door and an open one. Blaming closes the door on the opportunity in front of you. I should say it slams the door shut. But looking for solutions opens the door instead to new opportunities. So like Hannibal did, accept your situation first. The decision is yours to make. Are you trying to point the finger, looking for someone else to be responsible? Or are you taking accountability for your actions and actually looking for ways to progress forward? Ask yourself, where can I turn my problem into an advantage? But be careful, and this is your final takeaway for today, just because a solution worked once doesn't mean it'll still work today. Constant re-evaluation is critical so we don't get caught in situations like the allies at Gallipoli who failed to accept the reality of our situation. A constant reality check is a healthy bias. And remember, if a door has been opened for you, keep that door open for the person who's coming right behind you. So thank you for listening to this episode of Subject Matter. If you've got this far, I really appreciate you taking the time to tune in. You can subscribe over on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening for our next episode, which will be dropping next Tuesday. Our big focus this season is making subject matter as relevant and practically useful to you as possible. So if there was something you particularly liked or didn't like, or would like to see more of, we would love to hear from you. You can reach me directly at ben at benbradbury.com over email, and you can reach me at Instagram at benbradbury. I would absolutely love to hear any feedback you might have on the show. So without further ado, thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next week for another episode of Subject Matter.